Come on up, guys. I need to ask you a question. Or not ask you a question, but tell you about something. What about what? The gameplay? What gameplay? Like Simon's, oh, that would be a good one. But I'm not going to do that today, but maybe next week I'll plan a game for us, okay? You help me. When you see me on Thursday night, when you're here, or Wednesday night, worship team, Wednesday night, Wednesday night, worship team. Don't come Thursday because Pastor Bob won't be here. When you come Wednesday night with your folks, you remind me about coming up with a game. Can everybody shift a little bit this way so that everybody has lots of room? Cool. Thank you. Um, when I was a young guy, I joined the Air Force, literally right out of high school. And the very first job that I got from the Air Force was I was made a carpenter. And when I got my carpentry to my first carpenter shop, they, the, 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 my boss took me over to this wire cage, basically, in our shop. And there was a man that worked in there and he came out and he handed me tools that I had to then build my own box to put my tools in. So I had to learn how to be a carpenter by building my first toolbox. And so I looked at other people's toolboxes and I tried to fashion mine like theirs. I took measurements because they gave me a tape measure. Because what do you do with a tape measure? What? You measure stuff with. And what do you do? How do you get the nails into the wood? Adrian, how do you do that? What do you use? A screwdriver to get nails? A hammer for nails or a screwdriver for screws. Yeah. Now what if the top of the screw, what if the head of the screw has like a neg- has like a subtraction sign, a negative a minus sign? That's that's for the screwdriver. That's for a screwdriver, but it's a it's a called a common screwdriver because it only has blade that goes like this on the end of the screwdriver. What if it has like a plus sign on the top of the screw? What do you use? No, use a Phillips head screw. See, there's two different kinds of screwdrivers and you have to learn which one you're supposed to use. Otherwise, you mess things up. When you have a nail... And if it's flat, you use a hammer. Exactly. And when if you're pounding a nail, some nails have a head on them and some nails don't. And if the nails that don't have a head on them... The head rests on the wood and kind of helps pull the wood down. But sometimes you don't want to see the nail head when you're building something. You want to use a nail that it goes down underneath the surface of the wood, and that's called a finish nail. But what happens if you use a finish nail and you get down to the where the finish the head of the finish nail is the same at the same with the wood, and you hit it one more time with the hammer, you're gonna smoosh the wood with the hammer and you'll end up with a big mark on the wood. So if you don't want to knock the nail all the way down into the wood with a hammerhead, how do you get the nail head below the surface of the wood? You have to use, you know, you have to use a tool. It's about this big. It's called a nail set. I wish I had brought it with me. I wish I had planned to bring my tools with me to show you them. But a nail set, you put that on top of the nail. Then you take your hammer, tap, tap, tap. And it pushes the head, the, the nail down below the surface of the wood, but it doesn't damage the wood. See, there's special tools for special jobs. You wouldn't use a saw to measure something, and you wouldn't use a tape measure to cut something, right? That would be silly. But until you learn how to use the different tools, you might try to do something like that, right? Well, you know what's really cool? The Bible tells us. That God gives us tools to use in the church. Did you know that? And it's not hammers or screwdrivers or tape measures. It's different kinds of gifts and talents that God gives us to be used in the church. Like, for example. Like a chainsaw? Like a chainsaw. Maybe. Chainsaw, if you need to cut through something really, really hard. But it would be maybe prayer. Prayer could be a tool that you could use. Faith could be a tool that you could use. Well, what are some other things that we could do about with church? What do you think, Audrey? A what? I didn't hear you. The flags. That's a good worship is a tool. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Believe in yourself or believe in God. Well, let me let me read to you. I left my Bible. Oh no! Here, I found this Bible up here. Let me read to you. There's a book in the Bible called 1 Corinthians. 
And it's 1 Corinthians, and it's the chapter 12. And it says, For we have... This is King James. This is going to be interesting for the children. Thank you. Actually, I have the big one. I have the big one. No, this one has comfort letters too. I'll just read from the church big Bible because this one, New King James isn't going to help anybody. First Corinthians chapter 12 says, there are varieties of gifts or tools but the same God. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who gives, who empowers them all in everyone. Listen to this part. To each member of the church, God gives some manifestation, some evidence, some proof that the spirit is there for the common good. In other words, God gives us these gifts or these talents or these tools For everybody in the church is good. To one person, God gives wisdom. To one person, God gives knowledge. To another person, God gives faith. To another person, God gives the gift of healing. Another person, God gives the gift of working miracles. To another person, gives the gift of speaking the gospel or speaking truth. Or being prophetic. Another gets the ability to be able to tell when good or evil is present. Another person, well, all of these different tools, all of these different gifts that God gives us. And the thing is, you know what it says in the Bible? We should not seek after any particular gift or tool. We should trust that God's going to give us the tools that we need to do the work that God wants us to do. Because guess what? Maybe Adrian wants to be an electrician. So Adrian wants to be an electrician. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Adrian wants to be a carpenter. So he grabs a hammer and a saw and a chainsaw and a tape measure. But God wants Adrian to be an electrician. You wouldn't use a chainsaw to cut wires with you, would you? That wouldn't be good. You wouldn't use an axe to cut wires. You would have to use like pliers or little... You wouldn't use a saw. So see, that thing is if God wants you to be a certain thing or do a certain thing, God's going to give you the right tools to be able to do what God wants you to do. And it'll be for everybody's good. And so as long as we're doing what God wants us to do, using the tools God gives us, the church can grow. The kingdom of God can grow. It's when we try to pick up the wrong tool or we desire the wrong tool or we have a selfish motive. That's when things start getting all kind of crazy. So the truth, what I want you guys to learn from this is this. Trust God that he's going to give you what you need to do what he wants you to do. Trust that he knows what he wants you to do. And then when you start discovering the gifts or the tools that God has given you, Start learning how to use them. Start learning how to use them so that you can be a good worker for the kingdom. Let me pray with you guys. Jesus, bless these kids. Please help them to understand more and more in the coming days what it means to be an effective worker for the kingdom using the tools and gifts that you've given us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, you guys can go back to your class now. Last week, if you didn't know, I was in California to celebrate my aunt's 80th birthday. And in counting it up, um, on Saturday at her birthday, there was about 23 people. Then the next day was my nephew's son's birthday. So it was my grand nephew or great nephew. Um, and his birthday his was his first birthday. And then the next day was my birthday. And then yesterday was my niece's, my, my nephew's daughter's first birthday. So we had lots of parties. But one of the things that we did while we were at my sister's house, because Renee and I stayed with my sister, 
Um, my, my dad was notorious for taking his video camera, you know, not the video camera, but the old 90s video camera, and setting it on a tripod in the middle of the living room on a particular spot. And then at Christmas, everyone had to sit in that chair to open up their Christmas present. And my sister wanted to watch those videos. Well, I enjoyed watching them but not watching the same chair for 45 minutes as people cycled in and out. What I enjoyed was my dad finally started changing it up and he actually put the the camera in the corner of the room and video recorded the whole room because then they could focus on whoever was getting their gift. But I was able to now 20, 30 years later to see all the people in the room interacting with each other. So it was bringing back there's my grandma, there's my mom, there's my brother who's died. I mean, all of these people that I haven't, I can't see anymore. And it was just, oh, this is wonderful. And as we were doing that, <clears throat> there were times my mom and dad had lived in, see, one, two, three, four, four houses over the course of a 30-year window. And so as we're watching the videos, we're trying to figure out which house it was. And I'm like, no, that's, that's number 74. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I know it is. You didn't even live here. I know it is. Well, we were sitting there talking about that. And one of the ways we remembered this was this horrible story to remember. But it was 1998. We're watching the video of 1998. And I said, that's 74. And they said, how do you know it's 74? I said, because that's the year that less than a month later, I mean, less than a week later, my brother Jeff had a health crisis and mom rushed home to be there with him. Well, yeah, that's exactly where it happened in 74. I was right. See? <laughs> but let me tell you about the story about mom's premonition about my brother's health issue. It's Christmas time. Christmas is done there at the house. The video just proved it. And then a week later, it's New Year's, and my mom and my dad have taken the, the time to go up five hour, four hours to my sister's house in Central California. And they arrive on Thursday evening or Friday morning, I don't know which, and they're there until like Monday or Tuesday. And they're going to be there for three or four or five days. It's Saturday. And my mom, in the middle of the day, or middle whenever it was, all of a sudden goes, we got to go home now. We've got to go home now. And my dad was like, what? We've got to go home now. We've got to go home now. And my dad was like, it's a four and a half hour. We've got to go home now. Okay, fine. So they packed everything up, said goodbye to the family, didn't spend the weekend for the, for the New Year's, and drove home. When they got in the house, they discovered my brother Jeff in a coma. In a coma. He had had a diabetic attack. His blood sugars had gone into the 700s. It had happened while he was putting on his pajamas, and so he had fallen when he went, when he went into the coma on the floor in front of the open sliding glass window. So although it's Southern California, it was still winter time and there was cool air blowing on his body and his body core temperature had gone down into the 70s. So here he is, blood sugars in the 700s in a keto acid, keto acid, whatever you know, those of you who have medical, you know. <coughs> and his blood core, I mean, his body core temperatures dropped into the 70s. The doctors said, had he laid there until Monday or Tuesday, he would have been dead. He did not make a phone call to tell my mom that he was having a problem. Nobody knew he was in the house but mom and dad. How did my mother know that they had to go home now? How? Well, mother's intuition. No. Mothers do know stuff. I mean, if it gets quiet, you know to go check. But there's a difference between mother's into mother's mother's experience and intuition or God telling you something's going on and you need to whatever. And I want to look at this morning that idea about God specifically giving you divine knowledge, something beyond anything you can know. Not anything you can learn, not anything you can study. It's just all of a sudden it's imparted to you. And. In today's vernacular, that's called a word of knowledge. Okay? But we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're talking like 4,000 years ago, approximately. Maybe maybe 3,000 years ago. I don't remember the exact timeline. But we're going to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Now go ahead and open that up. But I want you to first go 
to chapter 8 because we have to remind ourselves a little bit about what was going on before we actually get into the story. Now, if you remember, the people of Israel wanted a king. And Saul said, he went to God and he's like, they're rejecting you, God. And they're, they're rejecting me, God. And God said, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Go ahead. Give them a king. So then in verse, chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, verse 21, it says, When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice. Make them a king. Samuel then said to the people of Israel, Go, everyone, to their own city. Okay, so the last words of chapter 8. God says, give him a king. And Samuel says to the people, okay, everybody go home. What did Samuel do right after that? He got on his face before God. And he started praying, God, you want me to give him a king, but who do I give him? What am I supposed to do? They don't want me. They don't want my sons, clearly, because that's what this whole chapter started out with. He tried to get, put his sons in charge, and the people said, ah, ah, your kids are scoundrels. We don't want them. Right. So what is he doing? He's asking God. He's on his face before God, asking God what should be done. So look at verse 1 of chapter 9 of Samuel. What does it say? There was a man of Benjamin whose name was, whose name was Kish the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth and power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. What is this? Well, this is giving us the background so we'll understand who God is identifying to Saul. But how do we know that God is identifying this to Saul? Well, before we get into all that, I don't want to read through the whole chapter because there's 20 some verses and it would take all morning just to do that. Just understand just as a recap. Kish has a son named Saul. Kish is a wealthy man. Kish has some donkeys. Donkeys were not cheap. Donkeys were at that time the mode of transportation. They were the beasts of burden and donkeys got loose from Kish's campground or, or, or stable or whatever they used. And so he said to his son Saul, I need you to go look for those donkeys because they're, I don't want to lose them. Go get them. Find out what happened, what happened to them. So Saul goes out with a friend. We're not told who he is. Scholars will say that he was somebody else, but we don't need to go in there. But basically Saul and one of the servants of the household go to look for the donkeys and they spend days looking for the donkeys. And then finally Saul goes, you know what? So much time has gone by that looking for these donkeys with no success. My father's going to stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about me. Let's just go home. And his servant says, before we go home, why don't we ask God? Interesting dynamic. The guy who's being identified as the future king of Israel depends on his own strength for three or four days and then finally is about to give up and somebody else says, have you prayed about it yet? What a good idea. But I have nothing to offer. That's a true statement too. But the servant goes, oh, I got a quarter shekel of silver, which I was reading some scholars, they said it equals about 12 cents. I don't know how much it was, but the bottom line is it wasn't a whole lot of value. But he went, okay, let's take that to the guy. So then they try to find the seer, the prophet. And they get to the town where the prophet's supposed to be, and they stop this woman in the street. And they said, we're here to see the seer. And she goes, oh, you better hurry up because he's getting ready to have a party. They are going to have this sacrifice and they're holding until he gets there because, you know, he has to bless the sacrifice. But you better hurry up because once he goes in for that thing, only the invited guests get to go into the party. If you want to talk to him, you better hurry up before they start the party. And so he's like, okay, okay. So he finds, he starts heading there and lo and behold, Samuel just comes out of the house. And Saul's standing there in the street with his servant. And Saul comes up and goes, hey, excuse me, a, a lady told me I'm supposed to be talking to the seer. She said, he's come to this party. Can you tell me where I'm supposed to find the seer? And what does it say? Samuel goes, you found him. You're the seer? Ooh, I got this 12 cents for you. And Saul says to him, don't worry about the donkeys anymore. They're taken care of. 
but I want you to come on up to the party. Now, remember, I said nobody gets to go to the party unless they're invited. So Saul invites him to the party. Now, if you will look in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, what does it say? Somebody read it out loud, really loud. And 16, please. Tomorrow about this time I will send to a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their pride has come to me. Okay, so the day before Saul enters the city, the day before Saul talks with the woman in the street who says, hurry, you're going to get to the party because the party's going to start and you're not going to get in, you don't get paid Saul, 24 hours earlier, because he's been in prayer, God has revealed to him not only who is going to be king, but he gives him very specific instructions so that he will recognize him when he shows up. That's a word of knowledge. There's no way that Samuel could have known that in himself. There's no way another human being could have given him information to let him know this was good. This was a direct from the Holy Spirit of God to the spirit of Samuel. You've been praying. Here's the answer to your prayers. And here's how you will know that you know that you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that this is indeed what the answer to what you've been praying for. Tomorrow, at this same time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him prince over the people of Israel. Look at verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. So not only did he say it on the day before, but when Samuel, I mean, when Saul came into Samuel's presence, as he comes out of the house and Saul comes up and says, I'm looking for the seer. Have you, can you tell me where I can find the seer? God whispers to Samuel, that's the guy. It's the guy I told you about yesterday. So the Holy Spirit is actively engaged with the prophet's spirit while Samuel is in the street talking with Saul. Then it says, verse 19, Samuel says, I'm the guy. Come on up with me. We're going to eat today. So Samuel invites Saul to the party. Then, look at verse 23. Samuel takes Saul into the party, and then Samuel, verse 23, goes to the cook. Some versions may say the butcher. It's the person who got the meat. And says, bring me the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So sometime yesterday... The Holy Spirit of God revealed to Samuel that he was bringing into the, his life the future king of Israel within the next 24 hours. So what does Samuel do? He knows he's got a sacrifice, a party going to be happening. So he goes to the person who handles the meat and says, take this special portion and set it aside until I call for it. And then they get to the party and Saul is seated in a place of honor and his associate, his servant is placed in a seat of honor. And then they bring this kingly portion out and lay it before Saul. And this 20 something year old kid who was just out looking for his dad's donkeys is going, oh, this is really weird. All I want to do is just ask where the donkeys were. Uh, and all of a sudden I'm at the head table at a party. Oh, uh, hi guys. This is for me. I've been famished. I would love to have you sure. Okay. Thank you. What's going on? Nothing. Because he doesn't tell him. Then the party's over with. Okay, so I can go home now. No, I want you to come and spend the night at my house. You, you want me to spend the night at your house? You're the man of God. 
Yeah, I got a special place for you up on the roof. Now, if you don't know anything about Israelite culture from back then, it wasn't like one of our roofs. Their roofs were flat, and a lot of times they had spaces up there for living, but they did life up on the roof. And so there was a place up there on the roof for Saul and his servant to sleep. Now, it says Samuel in the morning called up, so that meant Samuel went into his house to spend the night. Then in the early in the morning, Samuel comes out and goes, hey, Saul, come on down. I need to talk to you. And so they go down and it says at the break of dawn, verse 26, at the break of dawn, Samuel called up to Saul on the roof and said, come on, get up. I want to take you and send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and the servant. They went out to the street as they were going down to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, tell your servant to pass on before us. And so when the servant went on, then he said to Saul, stop here for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. And that's the end of chapter nine. Now we're going to talk about chapter 10, about him getting anointed and all that. That's different. But here we have a word of knowledge being given to a man of God specifically so that this man of God would know exactly what God needed of him. And then he acted on it. Now, I want to ask you, I want to point, I've already read it to the kids, but let me refresh you. First Corinthians chapter 12, okay? Verse 8, I had the New Living Translation in my notes, and that's what I was hoping to grab, but I freaked out when I couldn't find it, when I wanted to read it to the kids. This is what the New Living Translation says, First Corinthians chapter 12. The, to one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another... The same spirit gives a message of special knowledge. What is the difference between a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge? Because in the Greek, the word that's translated wisdom is Sophia. The word that's translated knowledge from the Greek is gnosis. So they are two distinct words in the original language. And therefore, they are not the same. They're not, they're, they're not synonyms. They are two distinct words. What is the difference between wisdom and knowledge? What do you think? Knowledge. Go ahead. Knowledge would be like a, a fact or something, whereas wisdom would be application Ding, 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 ding. Give that woman $5. At the end of the Renee, we'll give it to you at the end of the service. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. That's exactly what the difference is between wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom, excuse me, knowledge is a fact. Knowledge is knowing something. Wisdom is knowing how to apply that something. Okay? So if you look at Jesus' life and the Gospels of Jesus' life, you read where Jesus shut up his accusers just by his wisdom. They would go, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, well, show me a, show me what coin you use to pay the taxes. And they say, blop. He says, well, whose inscription and whose image is that? And they said, well, that's Caesar. He says, well, then give to Caesar the thing that belongs to Caesar. Give to God the things that belong to God. End of story. And they're like, that wasn't facts. That was him using facts to shut them up. <laughs> He didn't violate anything in God, nor did he violate anything in the Roman law. He simply said, well, if you have an allegiance to Caesar, give him what he's owed. If you have an allegiance to God, give him what he's owed. He didn't put either one higher than the other. He was wise in his answer. That's knowledge, That's wisdom. People like the deacon Stephen used wisdom. Why? How do we know that? Well, because it says in the book of Acts, when they were looking for deacons, they said, look for people who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. In other words, find somebody who has the spiritual gift of wisdom because they are needed in this particular field. Wisdom would be, well, we have 750 people that need food and we have 7,000 pounds. How many pounds of food does each person get over the course of a month? That's an application. It's wise things. How do you resolve things? Solomon was known for being wise. It wasn't that he was just full of facts. He wasn't a walking Wikipedia. He knew how to apply. He could look at the facts and he could, he could make certain judgmental statements and he could make things. People would go, wow. I mean, think about the women who brought the baby and said, this is my baby. No, it's my baby. And he said, okay, cut it in half. What? Cut it in half. Give each one of them half. We're done. 
But no, 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 yeah, just do it. That way it's fine. But that's my, no, let her have it. Never mind, never mind, let her have it. He said, give that one the baby. How did he know that? He was applying wisdom, okay? So the difference between wisdom and knowledge is you know things. That's knowledge. You know how to apply what you know. That's wisdom. What we're talking about here is not wisdom. We're talking knowledge. Knowledge is divinely imparted facts. Things that you couldn't have discerned or learned on your own or be told by another human being. This is something God reveals to you personally. Look, you don't have to look. Let me just tell you. John chapter 1 talks about the time when Nathaniel is introduced by his friend Philip to the, to the, to the, the Messiah Jesus. And Jesus and Nathaniel says, oh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then when he's introduced to Jesus, Jesus says, look at this man in whom there is no guile. That's knowledge. And he said, how do you know me? We've never met before. And he said, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That's knowledge. That's word of knowledge. So the human being, Jesus, had divinely imparted knowledge from the Spirit of God. Now, we don't going to get into the difference between the fact that he was fully human and fully divine. But he was demonstrating what it's like for a human being to have divine, divinely gifted knowledge, a word of knowledge. Look at John chapter 4, when he's at the, woman, at the, at the, at the well with the woman of, uh, of Samaria. And he says to her, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, well, that's true. You don't have a husband. because You have had four husbands, but the person that you're with now is not your husband. And she's like, he's told me everything I ever did. Well, that's word of knowledge. Okay. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is walking down with his disciples in the district of Caesarea Philippi. And he says to them, who do people say that the son of man is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he stops and he looks at them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You see, this is a New Testament evidence of not just Jesus having word of knowledge, but of a disciple having a word of knowledge directly from the Father. This is not from flesh, not from blood. This is the Spirit of God speaking into the spirit of the human being, giving them information that they did not have before, nor could they have discerned on their own. <clears throat> Remember when Saul, not King Saul, but the Apostle Paul, previously known as Saul, Remember when he was on the road to Damascus, getting ready to arrest all the people in Damascus that were naming Christ as their savior and the lightning from heaven blinded him. He fell out of the donkey and he becomes a Christian. What happened to him? He went into the city of Damascus. He was on a street called straight. He was sitting in a person's home and he was praying and fasting for like three days. And then Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19, it says, There was a disciple of Jesus who lived at Damascus. His name was Ananias. And the Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, I want you to rise and go to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas. I want you to look for a man of Tarsus whose name is Saul. For behold, he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about, from, from many people about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry our name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house on Straight Street, the house of Judas, and laid his hands on Saul. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now look at that. Two people. Saul being given a word of knowledge that there's a guy named Ananias is going to come and lay hands on you and you're going to get your sight back. And Ananias being given in a separate place, a word of knowledge from God saying, go to the house on Straight Street and see the man there and lay your hands on him because I've already told him you're coming and you're going to be used of me to restore his sight. And Ananias is like, oh God, uh... Uh, you, you don't understand. This guy's a bad guy. You don't want me going there, do you? Really? Yes, I do. But God, okay. See, isn't it weird? Because if this guy refused, what's that going to say about the word of knowledge that Saul got? But I think God in his sovereignty knew that Ananias was going to be faithful regardless. And that's why he was able with confidence to tell Saul, Ananias is coming. Even though Ananias had a little bit of a struggle. Because God's still in God. God is still in control. But you see how God is able throughout the kingdom at all times to speak into various lives and give information that they need to do what he needs them to do. Word of knowledge. The question is, we no longer live in Bible times. So is this for us today or was this for them? I will tell you. There are some, I'm going to quote now, because I want to quote exactly what was said in somebody's writing. There are some who believe the gift is no longer available for the church. They link it to apostles and prophets who had unique ability to understand what was divinely inspired revelation as well as what was not. Because the New Testament scripture had yet to be written. Therefore, once it was written... There was no longer a need for the gift. However, others argue that this gift is absolutely necessary today. They see this gift as more than just merely determining which prophetic words were from God and which were not. Instead, it is supernatural insight into certain facts. Thus, the gift is very much needed. Now, I cannot speak for you. But I can speak for me and my family. So let me tell you a story. First of all, my wife is a third generation Nazarene. Her dad was a Nazarene pastor. But her dad wasn't always a Nazarene. He was actually a Baptist. And he met a girl who was a Nazarene preacher's kid. So Renee's mom grew up in a parsonage. And in her Renee's mom's or grandparents' home, both grandma and grandpa Hagemeyer, Renee's parents, Renee's mom's parents, were both ordained elders in the Church of the Nazarene. They were both ministers. They both co-pastored in the early days of the church, back when Phineas was still alive. Phineas, for those of you who aren't Nazarene, was the founding minister of the Church of the Nazarene. So we're talking back a hundred years. Literally, because this is 1920, this is 1923 is the era time frame that I'm talking about. Okay. And that's a hundred years ago. Renee's mom, Renee's grandmother and grandfather pastored in the panhandle of Texas and a little bit in Kansas and that area. And I don't remember exactly where it was that this happened, but it's in the 1920s or the early 1930s when this happened. And they were in a small country church. It was hot. They're in the Midwest. They're in Texas or Oklahoma area or Kansas area. It's hot. It's miserable. There's no such thing as air conditioning in a church back then. So they had all the side windows in the sanctuary open. The back doors of the sanctuary are open because it's just blistering hot. They might have had ceiling fans. It probably would be sitting there with the funeral home fan doing this. And it's an evening service. And the preacher is droning on. Or maybe there's a song person leading hymns or something. But the service is going on. And Mrs. Reverend Pastor Anna Hagemeyer is sitting in the pew. And she's just fanning herself and praising God. And she looks up, looks over at the window. At all of the windows and at the back door. And there are demons at all of the windows. And at the back door. Now this is not a woman who is a flighty, crazy woman. She's not a drunk. 
She's a minister of the gospel who's a pastor and she's seen demons at every window and door. And she's like, God, what's going on? Now, the service is just going on. She's trying to be calm. And the Lord, the Holy Spirit said to her, those demons are waiting for a person who's sitting in this room right now. You need to stand up and testify to what you see. Oh, God, they're going to think I'm crazy. I didn't ask you what you thought. I asked you to stand up and testify to what you see. Okay, God. I guess if they think I'm crazy, they think I'm crazy. But I will do what you ask me to do. And Anna Hagemeyer, Reverend Anna Hagemeyer, in the middle of a worship service in a Nazarene church in Panhandle, Texas, or, or, or Oklahoma, stands up and says, Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you people are going to think about me, but I have to be obedient to the Lord. And I need to let you know that God has given me a vision and I am seeing demons at every window and at every door. And I don't know what this means. And all of a sudden, a man jumped up and ran to the altar. I think the story said he screamed. Renee can't remember that part, so I'm not going to say he screamed. He screamed. And he ran to the altar and knelt at the altar prayer and he gave his heart to Christ. And at the end of all of that, when he stood up and they asked the pastor, then asked him, what's this all about? The man with tears still streaming down his face said, I was sitting there in the church service and I looked over and I saw demons at the windows and demons at the doors. And the Holy Spirit whispered to me, this is your last chance. You either give your heart to me or they're waiting for you. Okay, really freaky, bizarre. You don't have to believe it. It's my family story, so you don't have to like it. You just have to hear me say it. Let me tell you a personal story. I was at a Bible study once back when I was 17, 16, 17, 18, something like that, 16. And this man came up to me at the end of the Bible study. We'd never met before. And he said, I have a message to you from the Lord. You do? Yes. Bloom where you were planted. What does that mean? I have no idea. God told me to tell you that. Okay. So I prayed about it for the next number of days. <clears throat> and I truly believed that what God was saying through that man was I had gotten saved and had started attending the Baptist church with all of my friends. But I had been reared a Roman Catholic. And I believe that word of knowledge that came to me that day was God wanted me to return to the Roman Catholic Church to worship with my family. And I believed that that's what God was calling me to do. So I went back to our local parish priest by myself. I didn't let my mom and dad know. I just went back to the priest and I said, "Um, I have left the church and I've just joined a Baptist church, but I really feel like God has asked me to come back to the Roman Catholic Church. What, What do I need to do? Is there any ritual or any classes or anything? And he said, no. Just go to confession on Saturday and confess the sin of having joined the Baptist church. And then then you're welcome back. And I walked out of his office and I went, I wasn't sinning. So I was like, are we good? He said, we're good. And so I just started going back to church on Sunday with my family. I never said a word about why. They never asked. We just kept going to church on Sunday for another six months, maybe a year. Then finally God moved me on. And then finally I moved out of the house and joined the Air Force. Ten years later. Ten years later, I'm in conversation with my mom. And she said, you will never know what you did. What do you mean what I did? Your father and his mother had a knockdown, drag out fight over you. And your grandmother said to your father, if you had been a better father, he would still be a Catholic today. And it shredded his heart. It destroyed him. And then out of the blue, without anything, no prompting, nothing, you just started coming back to church with us. And you went to confession and you took communion. And it healed your father's heart. And you will never understand what you did. (sighs) Word of knowledge. Now, the challenge is... You might not ever know why. All you need to do is be obedient. 
I'll give you one more. When I first got here as a pastor, God positioned me when I first got here to be leader. Now, I'm brand new, not only to the ministry, but to Fairbanks. But within a year, I became the leader of what had been a 30 plus year pastor's prayer group that met weekly. And we went from church to church to church. You, you, do you remember? And we would pray over the congregation and the leadership of that particular ministry in their space. That's what we did. Well, I was, we were at Corinthian Baptist Church on the corner of 23rd and Lathrop or whatever it is. You know where it's at. It's down south of the hospital area. And we were praying for that pastor and their ministry. And one of the things that God was rearing up in me and I, I'm raising up in me. I, I have never done this before, but it was happening more and more frequently. Every week we'd go someplace and God would just bring a scripture to mind and be like, say this scripture out loud. Say this scripture out loud during the prayer time. I'm like, okay. So I was doing that. I was practicing that. I was like, Lord, if you have a word for me to say. Now, I was only using just scripture. I wasn't speaking prophetically or anything. I was just using scripture. But if God prompted me, I said it out loud. So I'm at Corinthian Baptist Church during our prayer time as we're praying for the pastor and for the community of that of that church. And God had me speak a, a word of, of scripture out loud in that prayer time. To this day, I don't even remember what it was. Couldn't tell you what it was. At the end of the prayer service, we were done. We left. No, I never knew anything about it, other than just we prayed for them. And then we said next week we're going to be meeting at such and such. And we all left. Year later, year and a half later, I might be two years, I don't remember, a pastor comes up to me who has just started a church down on South Van Horn, or I don't know what it is, anyway, I don't know, it's down south, south of the Mitchell Highway. And he said, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, I do, but I can't remember where. He said, I was the pastor at Corinthian when you guys came and prayed over us. I said, yeah. He said, you didn't know it, but I was struggling with whether or not God really wanted me to leave that church and start this one. And I I was fighting it because I just didn't really have a clue. And I felt like it might have just been ego. And I was thinking, but I just, and all of a sudden, you just quoted a scripture out of the air. And it was like the Holy Spirit went, this is my word for you. And it was the defining moment in his ministry of announcing his leaving of this church. And going and planting a new church in Fairbanks. I was the one. Now, I'm not going. I'm not all that in a bag of chips. I am not high and holy. I just listen to my father. And when he asks me to speak, I speak what he asks me to say. That's it. Or if he asks me to do, I do. If he gives me a scripture to, pre- to preach or pray over somebody, I do. I have no clue most of the time why. I just know that I'm being asked to do it. It's not mine to know. It's mine to do. I'm not the king. I'm not in charge. I'm the servant. When the, when the king who's sitting on the throne says, hey, servant, do this. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, God. I will do whatever you ask me to do. Do I go, I don't understand. You need to explain to me. No. I just do because that's what I'm called to do. So let me let me read to you. A little bit of a, a, a listing, if you will, about this gift of the word of knowledge. The gift known as the word of knowledge is indeed a biblical spiritual gift. This particular gift of the word of knowledge is given to believers supernaturally. So that they know something about a situation or a person. Number two. It is not to be used to take advantage of the circumstances or of others. Number three, it is not for public display. Number four, although some argue that it is no longer appropriate to the church, it most definitely is used of God today in the lives of the church and in the lives of the people who are willing and have proven themselves able to be trusted. I want to read to you one last thing. 
This is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then we're done. I'm going to close with this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 through 31 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracle workers, then people with gifts of healing, then helping, then administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. It's not written here. But the, uh, the inferred statement is at the end of that, and let God choose who gets what. Because he knows what he needs, and he knows where it needs to be, and he knows when it needs to be. And again, as I said early on in this service, you might be the only person that can carry that message. Because the person who needs the message may be so damaged and broken by the church or past past harm that the only person they can receive it from is you because they trust you, they love you, they know you would never cause them harm. But you have to faithfully walk it out. So again, don't desire it, don't seek it, but always be ready with your hands open saying, God, if you choose to give it to me, I will use it for your glory. Let's pray. Jesus We come to you now, obedient, willing to honor you, willing to serve you in any way, shape, or form. Whatever you choose, we say yes. And if you ask us to carry this gifting of a word of knowledge, we promise that we will never, ever, ever violate your confidence in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.